How many of you like puzzles? Very nice. How about this one? How many of you like this puzzle? Yeah. Less hands. Less hands. This puzzle was introduced in 1974. 1974. It's a three-dimensional puzzle, and since its introduction, it has sold over 300 million units worldwide. There are a lot of people who like to play with Rubik's Cubes, and I am not one of them. I'm not one of them, and I'm not alone in the fact that I'm not one of them. Couldn't resist that picture. That poor cat, right? It's exactly what I look like. I get it and I and just put it down again. You know, there's an ancient legend, an ancient legend about a peasant farmer by the name of Gordius who became the king of Phrygia. Phrygia is kind of south-central modern Turkey. According to this legend, this peasant farmer by the name of Gordius became the king of Phrygia, and upon ascending to the throne, according to the legend, he dedicated his ox cart to the god Zeus, and then he fastened it to a pole with an amazingly complex knot, a knot, and it was called a Gordian knot. Now, we don't know exactly, because this is all legend anyway, but this is a modern illustration of what some think a Gordian knot might have looked like. It's a knot in which there are no ends available to the rope in order to be able to untie it. The story goes in this legend that there was an oracle given and that the knot would someday be untied by the future king of Asia. The knot defied many, many people who wanted to untie it and ascend to the throne, and it frustrated one after another until Alexander the Great came along in the 4th century B.C. Alexander had conquered this particular area of Phrygia, and he spent, according to legend, a winter puzzling over the knot himself and seeking to figure out how to untie it. At the end of the winter, he grew frustrated by the knot, and so one day drew out his sword and cut it in half, thus untying or severing the Gordian knot and then going on to become the king of Asia. So over time, the expression a Gordian knot entered into vocabulary. And a Gordian knot, it means that there is a difficult problem that defies solution. It is a very difficult problem defying solution. It's called a Gordian knot. And the expression cutting the Gordian knot refers to a bold solution to resolve the irresolvable. You whip out your sword and you just whack it in half and that's how you deal with it. So now you have been educated in an expression of the English language, the Gordian knot. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 4. And we are returning again this morning to the temptations of Jesus Christ. 
as relayed to us by Matthew in his gospel, chapter 4, and beginning in verse 1. Now, last week, as we looked at this section together, and we looked at the first 11 verses, we did so according to Matthew's purpose for including this segment in his gospel, and that was to, deter, or to, to make known the moral qualifications of Jesus to be the Messiah and King of Israel. We looked at this section under a title called Morally Qualified. He was morally qualified. And in this section, we noted last time that Satan tempted Jesus, and actually Jesus engaged Satan in open combat. And he did so by his willingness and ability to follow God the Father's plan and direction for his life, defeating Satan in a series of three temptations. Three times Satan came to him to tempt him. Three times Jesus defeated him by demonstrating moral virtue. We noted those moral virtues last time as dependence, contentment, and obedience. Let me read the text for you this morning, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give His angels charge concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now in reflecting upon this account of the temptation of Christ, Many, many thoughtful Christian people through the ages have encountered a theological puzzle, a theological puzzle of Gordian proportions. That puzzle is classically referred to as the peccability versus the impeccability of Christ. Peccability versus impeccability. The word peccability is a Latin word, It is a Latin word, and it refers to a person's susceptibility to temptation and sin. A person is peccable in that they are susceptible to temptation and sin. Impeccability, on the other hand, refers to a person's inability to sin. It is the opposite. It is the person's inability to sin. So it is this this thoughtful people arrive at this puzzle, this problem of how can Christ be tempted to sin and yet how can he be God and be beyond temptation? Now generally when 
discussing the, the doctrine of the impeccability of Jesus Christ, there are two other Latin phrases that, that come up in the, in the literature, and so I include them for you just in case you want to do any of your own study and you come across these phrases. They sort of further define what it means to be impeccable. The first is another Latin phrase, posse non pecari. Posse non pecari. I wish I spoke Latin. I wish I read Latin. But anyway, posse non pecari means able not to sin. Posse means ability, and it is the ability not to sin. The other phrase is non posse pecari, which is being not able to sin. So these are two ways to define what it means for Christ to be impeccable. He is able not to sin, and he is not able to sin. And together, these two expressions give definition to what it means to be impeccable. It is the idea that not only can Jesus not be overcome by temptation, but that he is unable that he is able to overcome the temptation as well. So he's able to overcome it, and he is not able to be overcome by it. The impeccability of Jesus Christ. Okay. This morning we are about to tread on holy ground. We are about to tread on holy ground. We are are going to peer into the mystery of the God-man. And I pray, and others have prayed for me this morning as we enter into this, that we walk the razor's edge, as it were, and not fall off one side or the other into saying something that is not true of our Lord and Savior. But I want to enter into this. I want to explore this theological puzzle with you because I believe that it has great benefit for us in our Christian walk day to day. So I want to explore the theological puzzle, and I want to do it under three headings. Three headings. The first is a problem to be solved. A problem to be solved. Peccability versus impeccability. A problem to be solved. Secondly, I want to suggest to you a proposed solution. A proposed solution. And then finally, a promise to cling to. A promise to cling to. Now, let us establish right up front that all the advocates of both peccability and impeccability of Jesus Christ are agreed on this one point, and that is that Jesus never sinned. Jesus himself never sinned. To the Jews who opposed him, Jesus said in John eight forty six, Which of you convicts me of sin? Which of you convicts me of sin? And they were silent. They hated him. They trumped up all kinds of false charges against him, but none of them could lay a sin at his feet. Jesus Christ, the God-man, was sinless. Sinless. And we want to establish that and say that right up front. But let us look together here now at this problem to be solved. Now, as the passage we just read makes very, very clear, the God-man was tempted by Satan, right? Matthew 4, verses 1 and through 10, make it very clear that Jesus was tempted. Furthermore, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So it's clear that Jesus was tempted according to the Scriptures. He is the second Adam, the Bible tells us, the second Adam. He was a truly, or is a truly, human being in every sense of the word, 
except unto sin. He is a man like I am a man and like half of you are men, yet without sin. He is human as all you ladies are human, yet without sin. Now, let us quickly review what the Scriptures have to say about this so that we get this point firmly in our mind, the humanity of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus had a human body like ours. He had a human body like ours. We find that in the Scriptures in a number of places, and I'm just going to roll through these very quickly with you. I'm not going to even look them up with you. We don't have time. But He was born to a human mother. He was born to a human mother. Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. He was born to a human mother. Jesus grew through childhood and into adulthood. He grew through childhood and into adulthood. Luke 2.40, Luke 2.52, places you could examine. Jesus became tired. He became tired, John 4.6. Jesus was thirsty, John 19 and verse 28. Jesus hungered, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2 that we just read. And Jesus died, Luke 23 and verse 46. So Jesus had a human body just like yours. Just like yours. Beyond that, Jesus had a human mind like ours. He had a human mind. He increased in wisdom, the Scriptures tell us, Luke 2.52. That is, that Jesus learned to talk. Jesus learned to read. Jesus learned to write. And according to Hebrews 5.8, Jesus learned to be obedient. So like a child, he had to progress through all the stages of childhood development. He actually had to sit down and learn how to read and how to speak and how to write. He had a mind like yours and mine, yet without sin. Jesus had limitations upon his knowledge. Now, that one is difficult for us to be sure, but Mark chapter 13 and verse 32 is very clear about that, where he himself says that even the Son of Man does not know the day of his return. So there were certain things that Jesus did not know, did not know. Jesus also had a human soul and emotions. He had his human soul, and he had emotions. For example, several times in, in the Gospels, he says he was troubled, or he was anxious, or he was filled with dread prior to his crucifixion. The very thought of going to the crucifixion so troubled him deeply inside that, that on the night before, the night of his arrest, he actually sweat blood through his pores. He was so in dread of what was coming. He wept over the death of his friend. John chapter 11 and verse 35, the shortest verse in the New Testament, Jesus wept. Okay, if you're looking to memorize Scripture, that would be a good one to start with. Okay, you can build on your success. Jesus had a human soul Jesus displayed human emotions. Here's another one that's fascinating. To those who grew up with him, he was only a man. Now, this one's hard to think about, but it's very, very true. For example, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 
35. And I'll go ahead and turn you there for that one. Let's just do that. Matthew 13 and verse 55. Matthew 13, 55. Actually, we'll pick it up in verse 54. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Now you've got to think about what they're saying. They're saying is, we know this kid. He grew up among us. We know his father. His father, that was the carpenter. We know his mother. We know who his brothers are. We know who his sisters are. We've observed his life as he grew up. Where in the world did these miraculous powers come from? Now, what that means, my friends, is that as a child, Jesus didn't take a lump of clay, fashion it into a bird, blow on it, and have it fly away, as some of the apocryphal accounts would credit to him. He was a man. He began as a child. He grew up as a child. He was observed by his friends and neighbors, and their only conclusion about him is that he's a carpenter's kid, just the carpenter's kid. You can turn to Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. And there they are Astonished as well. And they say, not only is he the carpenter's kid, but isn't he the carpenter? Didn't he take over his father's business? He's just a carpenter. He's, a, he's just a guy who works with his hands. We know him. We know him. Even his own brothers. John chapter 7, verse 5. John 7 and verse 5. Even his own brothers saw him as nothing more than a man. John 7 and verse 5, For not even his brothers were believing in him. Not even his brothers were believing in him. Now, I know it's hard to get your mind around. You think, what would it must have been like, you know, living in, uh, with Jesus or growing up with Jesus? The answer is, you would have seen a man. A good man, a righteous man, but a man. You would not have concluded by growing up with him and observing his life that somehow this was God, very God. He was a man. Not an illusion, not a figment, but a man in every sense of the word, yet without sin. He was truly and fully human. Paul says it this way, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. But Jesus is also God. He is also God. He is a man and he is God. And thus we enter into the holy place, the mystery of the incarnation. In John's gospel, John chapter 20, 
In verse 28, we have one of the most outstanding statements, just amazing statement. On the lips of Thomas, one of his disciples. And what makes this statement so amazing is is to remember that Thomas is an Orthodox Jew. He is an Orthodox Jew. And as an Orthodox Jew, Thomas knew one thing and one thing only. That God is one. And that men are not gods. That's what the pagans believe. Pagan gods are, are men blown big. But there is only one God. And listen to Thomas' statement. Jesus says to him, Thomas, verse 27, reach here your finger and, and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. It's an incredible confession of faith on the lips of an Orthodox Jew. My Lord and my God. He is God. As God, according to James chapter 1 and verse 13, He cannot be tempted by evil. Furthermore, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, combined with Luke 1, 35, he is immutable in his holiness. That is, he cannot change in his holiness. He is God and he is without sin and he cannot be tempted by evil. So now we arrive at the crux of the problem, don't we? So could Jesus sin or not? Question. Could Jesus sin or not? If as God he could not sin, then in what sense can we say that that his temptations were real? If he could not sin as God, in what sense can we say his temptations were real? And thus he is able to sympathize with us. Charles Hodge, Charles Hodge, the Princeton theologian, the 19th century, in reflecting upon this conundrum, this Gordian knot, this theological puzzle, wrote the following, and I quote, Hodge says in volume two of his Systematic Theology, if he was a true man, he must have been capable of sinning. That he did not sin under the greatest provocation, that when he was reviled, he blessed, when he suffered, he threatened not, that he was dumb as a sheep before its shearers, is held up to us as an example. Temptation implies the possibility of sin. If from the constitution of his person it was impossible for Christ to sin, then his temptation was unreal and without effect, and he cannot sympathize with his people. That's what Hodge concluded. If he cannot fall into sin, then he was not tempted like you or me. It wasn't a real temptation. It was an illusion. It was a sham. And thus, he cannot sympathize with you and me. Hodge's conclusion, therefore, is that Jesus must have been temptable into sin. Peccable, to use the Latin. It's a problem. 
be solved. How can God be tempted into sin? For if God were to sin, he would no longer be God. How could the God-man brought together in incarnation sin? For if he were to sin as the God-man, that sin would morally taint him as God. It's a Gordian knot. So let me offer you a proposed solution. A proposed solution. It begins with some observations. So let's make some observations here. The first one, very simply, is this, that Jesus had no sin nature. We've said this over and over. We'll keep saying it. Jesus had no sin nature. Therefore, all temptations which he experienced came to him from the outside. They came to him from outside, not inside. Now, he had natural impulses within his sinless nature. Matthew chapter 4 tells us that after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was what? He was hungry. He was hungry. And if he had not held that hunger under control, he would have given in, turned the stones into bread, and would have sinned. But he is unlike us in the sense that there is no internal sin nature that would suggest sin to him as a solution to his problem. There was no basis of his temptation from an internal impulse or bias towards sin that you and I have. So in that sense, we can say his temptations are not exactly like yours and mine. Not exactly. But he is tempted. The second thing we can observe about Christ is that he never gave in to temptation. He never gave in. He fought it off all the way to the victory. In that sense, he is also unlike you and I. He is unlike you and I. Because far too often we give in to temptation. We battle for a while, but then we ultimately cave and give in. Jesus never gave in. He carried the battle out all the way to the end. It would be like being involved in a tug of war. Jesus never let go of the rope. He never let go of the rope, and he was never pulled across the line. That's not true for you and I. So in his battle against temptation, he battles it in a way beyond that which you or I have ever battled temptation, all the way to the victory. Third, a number of theologians have noted that peccability belongs to his human nature, And impeccability is a function of his divinity, his godness. He is peccable in his human nature. He is impeccable in his divinity. And when you put those two together, it renders the divine man, the God-man, impeccable. It renders him impeccable. Because it is a logical fallacy, number four, to assume that temptation implies susceptibility. That is a logical fallacy. An army that cannot be conquered can be attacked, to use an illustration. 
An army that cannot be conquered may still be attacked. Jesus, the God-man, cannot be conquered by sin, but that does not mean he cannot be attacked by it. It is a logical fallacy to assume that just because you are temptable means you are susceptible to giving in. Those two do not logically go hand in hand. I have another quote for you from the the, uh, 19th century theologian, William Shedd. William Shedd, professor of uh, theology of his day, he wrote the following in the second volume of his three-volume work called Dogmatic Theology. And I quote, Consequently, what might be done by the human nature if alone and by itself cannot be done by it in this union with omnipotent holiness? An iron wire by itself can be bent and broken in a man's hand. But when the wire is welded into an iron bar, it can no longer be so bent and broken. You understand his illustration, the humanity and deity of Christ. A mere man can be overcome by temptation, but a God-man cannot. Consequently, Christ, while having a peccable human nature in his constitution, was an impeccable person. Impeccability characterizes the God-man as a totality, while peccability is a property of his humanity. So what Shedd notes is, in his humanity he is temptable, in his divinity he is not. Together, as the God-man brought together by the incarnation, that Jesus is now impeccable. That is, he is not able to sin and he is able not to sin. It still leaves us in the middle of the knot, doesn't it? So far, all you should be sensing is the knot. Maybe some of you are thinking, eh, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Hang with me here. Hang with me. I recently came across an article that I thought was so helpful. So helpful with regard to this matter. It is an article written by Dr. Bruce Ware. Dr. Bruce Ware is a professor of theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he wrote an article that I believe cuts the Gordian knot with regard to peccability and impeccability. This is what he writes in this article. Quote, Jesus was genuinely impeccable owing to the fact that in the Incarnation it was none other than the immutable and eternally holy second person of the Trinity who joined to himself a full human nature. Stop right there. Second person of the triune Godhead, Jesus the Son, took to himself humanity. He took to himself a human nature. It was not a man who became God. It was God who became a man. Okay, that's important. He goes on to write, Nevertheless, this impeccability of his person did not render his temptations inauthentic or his struggles disingenuous. So Ware is saying that as the God-man, it doesn't mean that his temptations were not authentic and real temptations. 
that his struggles with sin were somehow disingenuous, that, that he doesn't, did not struggle with sin like unto how you struggle with sin. How so, he says. How so? Answer. Jesus resisted these temptations and in every way obeyed his Father, not by recourse to his divine nature, but through the resources provided to him in his full humanity. That is such an important statement. Such an important statement. I'm going to read it to you again. Jesus resisted these temptations and in every other way obeyed his Father, not by recourse to his divine nature, but through the resources provided to him in his full humanity. Said another way, when the going got tough, Jesus did not hit the God switch and vault over the problems of life. He overcame the problems of life. He faced his temptations and faced them down, that is, never gave in, in his humanity by the power of God working in him. According to where, Jesus' impeccability has nothing directly to do with how he resisted temptation and how he did not sin, how he He overcame sin. His divinity had nothing directly to do with it. Now that's an interesting concept. He goes on to write, and I quote, The common evangelical intuition seems to be this. If the reason Christ could not sin is that he is God, then the reason Christ did not sin must likewise be that he is God. Ware says, no. Don't Don't create that syllogism. Don't go down that path. The reason he could not sin is because he is God, and that is true. Do not make the next statement, which is the reason he did not sin, is because he is God. That does not logically follow one from another, even though we tend to put them together. Ware says that this symmetry, this Syllogism should be broken in our thinking. The reason that Jesus did not sin is because he utilized the resources given to him in his humanity. And that is so key. That is so key. And it's key for me and it is key for you. The reason he did not sin is not because he was God. The reason he did not sin is because he made use, full use, of the resources given to him by God in his humanity. Now, I hope you can begin to see how this relates to you and me. Let me try to illustrate. Many years ago, when I was in college, we visited some family friends on vacation, and they they owned a home on a lake. This particular lake had an island way out in the lake. And for reasons unknown to me, Still to this day, I decided one day while on vacation that I would attempt to swim to the island. I'm going to swim to the island. Now, the longest I'd ever swum in my life was a number of laps in a pool. But I'm now going to swim to this island. My father, having more sense than me, decided to follow along behind me in a canoe. 
So I am going to swim to the island. He is going to follow behind me in the lake with a canoe. So I set out. And I swam, and I swam, and I swam. And I stopped swimming because I was exhausted. And I looked over my shoulder, and the shore was really far away. And I looked over my other shore, and the island was really far away. So I tread a little water and caught my breath, and I swam, and I swam, and I swam. And then I paused again because I was exhausted, and I looked over my shoulder, and the shore was really, really far away. And I looked over my other shoulder, and the island was really, really far away. And so I swam, and I swam again. And this went on a number of times. And eventually, I reached the island. I reached the island. I managed to swim the entire distance. I did not drown. I'm here today. (laughs) Okay, so here's the key. Here's the key. Think with me on this. I could not have drowned because there was a canoe following behind me. I could not drown because there was a canoe following behind me. But the canoe had nothing to do with the fact that I swam to reach that island. You get that? The fact that there was a canoe in the water had nothing to do with the fact that that I swam that distance and I reached that island safely. I did that in my humanity by swimming and swimming and swimming. It's like Jesus. Jesus' godness is the canoe trailing in the water behind him that makes it impossible for him to drown, though that is to sin. But Jesus, in his humanity, making full use of the resources that God had provided to him in his humanity, is the reason he overcame temptation and sin. Now, that's huge. That is absolutely huge, and that is exceedingly practical. That's how something that that seems so theological, so heady, so so first-year seminary-ish becomes something that's exceedingly practical for the people of God. Jesus loved and meditated upon the Word of God. Jesus was the prototypical Psalm 1 man. Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. This is Jesus. He is the man who meditates upon the Word of God day and night. And in this, he prospers. Can we meditate upon the Word of God day and night? That is, with with regularity that makes it a, a vital part of our lives? Is that available to us? You bet it is. You bet it is. So that we can be like a tree planted by streams of water. Jesus loved and meditated on the Word of God. 
when he faced Satan in open combat in Matthew 4, how did he defeat him? Three times he cited what? The Scriptures. It stands written, he says, and then quoted the Word of God in order to defeat Satan in temptation. Jesus loved Jesus meditated upon the Word of God. It, it, it penetrated the fiber of his being, and he began as a young child. I think that's what Luke is communicating in, in Luke 2, verse 40 and, and 52. Is that as he grew in grace and favor with men and God, what it means is, is that he saturated his heart and mind with the Word of God, and it so transformed him that he was held in the highest esteem by both men and by his Heavenly Father. Very practical, very accessible to all of us. Beyond that, Jesus prayed to his Father. Jesus trusted in his Father's wisdom and righteousness in order to do the Father's will. We could say it this way, that that Jesus was the fulfillment of Proverbs chapter 1 and beginning in verse 7, where it's written, "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge." Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornament about your neck. Now, Solomon was writing to his son, to be sure. But like all good Jewish boys growing up, Jesus would have been steeped in the Proverbs. He would have understood that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. That to heed his father's instruction, his mother's instruction, as they taught him the word of God, is the path of wisdom. So he walked in wisdom. He walked in wisdom. Jesus lived by the the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Filled with the Spirit, it says in Luke 4, he went into the wilderness. Filled with the Spirit. Beloved, it is is these factors. It is is these things that that so characterized his life and, and provided him with the spiritual power to resist temptation. To resist temptation. And that takes us to the the third item, and that is we have a promise to cling to here, don't we? We have a promise to cling to. There is a problem to be solved, to be sure. I have proposed to you a solution, not original to me, but I have proposed to you a solution, which I believe does cut the Gordian knot. And that takes us to a promise to cling to, a promise to hang on to. Think with me in this. The writer of the Hebrews, he devotes the entire book, the entire book of Hebrews, to presenting the superiority of Jesus Christ over the Old Covenant. Jesus is superior to the Old Covenant in every single way. That's the theme of the book. As that one superior superior to the Old Covenant, Jesus provides to His people advantage. An advantage the Old Covenant could never provide. 
The writer of the book says, leave the old behind, come outside the city to Christ. Because he is superior to all that the old covenant made available to you. The advantage lies with Christ, he says. The advantage lies with Christ. And there are many advantages that lie with Christ, the writer spells them out. But one advantage that he, that he speaks of in, in Hebrews chapter 4, and I'll go ahead and turn you there, to Hebrews chapter 4. One amazing advantage provided to us in Christ is that Jesus understands how hard it is to fight off temptation. Jesus understands how hard it is to fight off temptation. Now, there are, there are some of you here this morning that you are absolutely caught in the whirlpool of temptation. You are going down, and you know it. You are being pulled down, down, down. You have lost hope. You have lost hope. You have tried to conquer sin and temptation repeatedly. It has brought you to a place of tears on more than one occasion. And yet, no matter how badly you plead for God to take it away, He doesn't seem to take it away, and you are caught. And you are discouraged. You're discouraged. Every one of us understand the power and pull of temptation, to be sure. So even, even for those of you this morning sitting out here thinking, well, I'm, I'm doing okay. Huh. Apostle Paul would say, take heed, lest you fall, right? We're all sort of on the edge, on the verge. It wouldn't take much to push us over. Jesus knows how hard it is to fight against temptation. He, he knows. And this is, the, this is the amazing statement the writer gives us here in, in Hebrews 4. It's not just that he knows, but the writer says he is always available to lavish his grace upon us so that we might fight and win as he fought and won. You understand that? That Jesus is as far away as your next prayer. Open your mouth and call out to Him. Hebrews 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is not sitting there at the right hand of the Father and saying, what a bunch of losers. What a bunch of losers they are. I don't know what their problem is. Why don't they just get on with it? He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He understands how hard the fight is. He understands. And believe me, my friends, he understands at a greater level than you do or I do. Because he has never, ever, ever given in. Ever. You think of your worst temptation. And Christ fought against that temptation all the way to victory, he never caved. Never. 
He's one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, verse 16, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. You get it? Your high priest, he sympathizes with you in your struggle. He understands what it means to fight against temptation. He understands it in a way that, that really you don't even understand it. And he is there for you to draw near to. And he wants to lavish you with his grace. He says, draw near, verse 16, look at it, with confidence. Come with confidence to his throne of grace. Don't hang your head in shame. Don't turn your back and sort of back into the throne room. Come in confidently into the throne room because Christ has conquered sin and death through his death, burial, and resurrection. Amen? You will receive mercy, he says. You will receive mercy and you will find grace in your time of need. What kind of grace will you find? you will find the same grace that empowered Jesus Christ to face temptation and to conquer it himself. That's the grace you will find. That if you will pursue the fight as he pursued the fight, then he will lavish his grace upon you and you will succeed. I don't know about you, but that's incredibly good news. Don't you think? Don't you think that's a promise we ought to cling to? That we ought to hang on to? How many times do we forget? How many times do we forget? Jesus says, draw near. Come. Come. I will lavish my grace upon you. You can win. The power of sin has been broken. You do not have to give in anymore. Beloved, according to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, Jesus left us an example for us to follow in his steps who committed no sin. You get that? He has left you and me an example. An example to follow in his steps who committed no sin. What is the example he left. It is to walk in the power of the Spirit of God. Hearts and minds saturated with the Word of God. Applying it in the moment of temptation that we might defeat the evil one. May this message embolden you to w- this week. May you walk out of here confident not in yourself, but in Christ and what He has done. Beloved, this is the gospel. You get this? This is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who, what? Believes. To the Jew first and also to the rest of us. May God grant us grace to hear and obey. Let's pray. Our Father, we are 
we are in this moment humbled. Humbled by the example of our Savior. Humbled by the reality that He faced temptation on our behalf and that He conquered it. That He is the sinless one. And that He willingly gave His life as an atonement for our sin. That the power of sin and death has been shattered in His cross and resurrection. That He desires to pour forth of His Spirit upon us mercy and grace in our time of need. That all we need to do is ask. Oh God, may You grant to us a renewed passion for holiness in our own lives. May You encourage those who are discouraged this morning, the faint-hearted. May You you put it within their hearts today to to renew the fight against sin and and to do it in, in the way that Christ has modeled for us that they might gain victory. Oh Lord, We may not be caught in the riptide of sin at this exact moment, but it lies ever at the door for every one of us, seeking to kill and destroy. We must master it. Oh Lord, You have given us the means and the grace to do so. May You enable us to believe and put into practice that which You have left. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.